are live. Hey everybody, this is Ali Amagasu. Welcoming you back to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. I'm joined here today by my co-host, as usual, Pete Johnson. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ali. How's it going? It's going quite well. I feel like it's been a while since we spoke. We're still kind of getting back into a groove after our summer hiatus. It is. It's it's fall is in full effect here in Michigan. The colors are really pretty. Um, we don't have the fire issues that you guys do have there in Southern California, but we're supposed to get some <laughs> snow here by the end of the week. Oh, wow. You're living in a different world. Yeah. Yeah. I was not I was not a good participant in any conference calls yesterday because I was watching the news out of one eye while I was kind of trying to pay attention because I'd spent the whole night up wondering how quickly this fire was going to jump from the 405 to Thousand Oaks. And that sounds really far, right, if you know Southern California, but it yeah, jumped but, to Calabasas. Yeah. One ember made it to Calabasas and started a 10-acre fire there. We're the next equal distance jump, you know, and so... Fortunately, it's chilled out for the moment. It's a beautiful, quiet day today, but tonight it's supposed to all start up again with even worse winds. So we shall see. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. It's living here. Good to talk to you, though. Um, hey, uh, we are um, <laughs> we have a guest right now who is neither dealing with the fires nor snow, as far as I know, uh, because he's on the other side of the world. Uh, we're thrilled to be talking to him. It is his evening time. He's probably thinking, let me wrap this up and get some dinner. His name is Bill Mulligan, and he works for Lutza, a company that's headquartered in Germany, or at least has a location in Germany. Welcome, Bill. Thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Thank you so much. Uh, we're excited to talk to you. Um, I, I often reach out to people who I say who have said something interesting. I've read an article or seen them present and found it uh, compelling. So you wrote an article, it's a few months ago now, talking about the cattle versus pets analogy. And anybody who's gone to an IT conference, I'm sure most of our audience has heard that analogy. Uh, the first person I heard it from was either Randy Bias or someone from Marantis. I'm not sure who. Yeah, Randy, same for me. Was it Randy? Okay. Yeah. I think it came from somewhere else. I don't know who who actually originated it, but I think it's 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 I think the reason it got repeated so much is because it resonated with people. They went, oh, oh, okay, I get this. Bill, do you want to just summarize for anybody who hasn't heard what what pets versus cattle or cattle versus pets is referring to? The original. Yeah. So I think the original intention is kind of like how closely you need to take care of things. So with a pet, each kind of individual is unique. You give it a name. When it gets sick, you nurse it back to health. And you really take care of each individual member. Whereas cattle, they're more interchangeable. When one cattle gets sick, uh, there's another one to replace it. They all get numbers rather than names. And they're a lot more interchangeable in each other. So with kind of pets, they're each individual unique things that you need to take care of. Where cattle are more replaceable and more interchangeable and easier to deal with and manage at a larger scale. And this was being applied to a discussion about <laughs> servers at the time when I first heard it. We were talking about how we needed to stop treating servers like pets. We really needed to have something that could be swapped in if something went bad instead of investing a ton of energy and time and worry into resuscitating the sick pet server. And largely, I think that philosophy was embraced. And we felt like we were all past it. But I read your article and it says we are treating Kubernetes clusters the same way. We have fallen right back into the trap. We're treating our Kubernetes clusters like pets. 
Tell me, say it isn't so. Unfortunately, it is so. So now a virtual machine or lots of types of infrastructure is literally just an API call. You can log on to multiple different cloud providers and in a couple of clicks or, an, or just a command, you can have a new instance. You can have a new cattle type instance of a virtual machine or another service. However, when you're looking at Kubernetes clusters, I think they're a lot harder to set up. And because of that, it's a lot harder to make them interchangeable. What we're seeing, uh, so I work with a lot of customers and talk to them about how they're currently using Kubernetes. And a lot of them set up one or two like large production Kubernetes clusters that use namespaces to kind of divide up um, all their users and provide multi-tenancy in the same cluster. But because there's so many users in that cluster, there's so many applications and it, there's not a repeatable way of creating that cluster, they're kind of locked into that one big cluster rather than being able to interchange or treat them, um, spin them up and down very quickly. So kind of what that limits them doing is they can't really move forwards. I mean, the Kubernetes project is one of the fastest open source moving projects in the world. It has a release every quarter and the people can't keep up because they can't up upgrade their clusters. If anything is going wrong in their clusters, it's not a small blast radius contained to kind of a single part or a single application or a single team. It's suddenly affecting the whole company. I think uh, Henning Jacobs from Zalando had a has kind of like a great summary of all these Kubernetes kind of like outage stories. And I think one of them that was collected on there was actually a keynote at the last KubeCon. And it was talking about Spotify, how they actually took out, I think, two of the three production clusters <laughs> all at once. I mean, luckily there was no impact, but think if you don't have the resources to kind of mitigate that or you didn't set it up correctly, when you take out kind of these you set things up so that you have to take so much care of each in cluster individually, then you can have a lot of problems very quickly. However, if you move towards more of a cattle management model where you treat all of your Kubernetes clusters as interchangeable, where you treat creating a cluster or spinning up a new one, upgrading it as simple as one click or one API call, you have a much better, more simple and more scalable management model for your Kubernetes clusters. Pete, does that resonate with you? Do you agree with what you, you heard Bill say there about that that is kind of how we're treating Kubernetes clusters? Yeah, there's certainly evidence to exactly what Bill's talking about and with exactly the same problems that we ran into before. I, I think, and Bill, correct me if you think I'm wrong here. I mean, even even if you just even if you just think about stages that you might have, you know, if you, let's say you're not, you know, full on CICD and developers need clusters for doing their their base development that's above what you can get on your own mini cube on your laptop that typically doesn't have mm. all the all the things you need to replicate a, a realistic environment and maybe you've got a stage before you go to production i mean even if you even even just in that scenario let alone treating the production cluster like it's cattle uh, i mean there, there's kind of multiple multiple ways to to interpret this. So I guess, Bill, let me ask it that to you that way. So are, are you talking about like, yeah, even treating my production clusters like cattle, or do you mean some of these other smaller environments that you might need uh, along a software development process? I think we're really seeing it every single stage. I think the classic example is like a large bank um, where because of all the security and appliance thing, just to get a virtual machine instance, or kind of like next stage as they start to move to, towards Kubernetes clusters, takes weeks or like 
in the worst cases, even months. And so once kind of developers have that instance or have that cluster, it doesn't matter if they're not using it, they won't give it up. And so it's their special thing that they need to take care of, they need to have because they won't get another one back. And right. so what that kind of leads to is actually a huge waste for the business. I mean, we've gone into some customers and their CPU utilization is like 2%. And that's a lot of wasted resources there because the thing is the developers, once they have those instances, they don't want to give them back because they won't get them again. They're treating them as pets that they need to take, specifically take care of. However, if you kind of change the whole management model from this ticket, this long process to kind of a self-service model for your teams that they can spin clusters up and down when and where they need them, we've seen customers really transform their resource utilization and how they use the clusters and get CPU utilization up to 60 to 80%. So it's not only um, improving things just on the production side, but also on the development side, helping businesses save costs too. So how does so so if you if you bomb around the Ludzi website a little bit, you you guys have this and there's a couple of products that have this the same kind of thing and Cisco Container Program Platform is is one of them as well, where you have this notion of like uh, a tenant cluster, right? That through a couple of clicks, somebody with the right permission can create a cluster somewhere. And that somewhere might be your internal data center, it might be on one of the public clouds. So how how does that typically how does that typically work for folks in sort of being the plumbing for this idea of treating clusters as pet or as cattle? Yeah, so how we think of it specifically at Lutsa, I think is kind of unique. So we have a software product called Kubernetes, and what we're doing is running Kubernetes in Kubernetes. And what that really allows us to do is leverage a lot of the ecosystem tooling and kind of the best practices that the Kubernetes community has learned. And so how we manage these clusters and make it really a simple self-service model for developers um, is leveraging the Kubernetes tools and best practices. So we have one master cluster where we're actually running the control plane of all of our, let's say, worker clusters or tenant clusters um, as containers in their own individual namespaces. So when a developer goes in to create a new cluster, uh, they click create a cluster, and then we create a new namespace in the master cluster and spin up the control plane of that user cluster as containers within that namespace. Then we get to leverage cluster API to provision the machines. And so that's something from upstream Kubernetes to provision and do lifecycle management of worker nodes. And what that allows our customers to do or people in the wider community to do is to treat machines wherever they may be, whether they're gonna be Cisco, IBM, on Google, Azure, AWS, and their own data center, treat kind of their machines as cattle within the whole Kubernetes ecosystem. And so kind of taking those together, we use Kubernetes CRDs and operators to manage the whole life cycle of the Kubernetes clusters. And by doing that, we automate a lot of the day-to-day -day operations and eliminate a lot of time, which frees both the operators and the developers of the platform to focus on more business-relevant tasks rather than just managing their infrastructure and having to treat it like pets. So now let me double-click on this a little bit. So suppose I want to use your product to spin up a new, brand-new tenant Kubernetes cluster, let's say, on Amazon. So at what layer, so at what level are you then creating that? Are you, you using EKS for that under the hood? Or are you spinning up your own uh, Kubernetes distro on top of EC2 instances? Or is it something else? So we're spinning up 
plain vanilla Kubernetes clusters right from Kubernetes upstream, and we're putting that on EC2 instances from Amazon. Okay. But the so the control plane will be be in kind of your the, your master cluster, and then like the worker nodes and the master for my new tenant cluster will be on fresh EC2 instances. Is that the way that works? Yeah, that's correct. But it's actually something we let the customers run themselves. So they can choose both where the master cluster is going to be and where the worker clusters are going to be. Ah. And those can actually be running across clouds. So in fact, I was giving a demo for a customer today, and we actually have our master cluster running in the Google Cloud. Um, I was, and I was spinning up clusters across DigitalOcean and AWS too. Unfortunately, we don't have Cisco integrated yet, but uh, actually the integration process is super simple. And We'd love to be able to provide that to our customers too. So then the idea there is once I have this master cluster, I use it to launch these tests, these tenant clusters on any any infrastructure provider of choice, whether that's a public cloud or whether it's VMware or OpenStack internally, right? Yeah, that's correct. Because okay. I think what we're going to see in the future, and this is kind of going back to the pets versus cattle analogy, is that the clouds are going to be treated more like a utility where they're providing compute and they differentiate themselves in higher level services, but you should be able to move your workloads and optimize based on what works best for you. So say one cloud is better for machine learning tasks and you need to be able to move your workloads there. You can do that. One cloud is better for just like raw compute based on pricing and you can move your workloads there. I think that's kind of what Kubernetes gives us is kind of this consistent platform to move workloads across clouds, whether it be on-premise, on the edge, in core networks, or across any major public cloud provider. And that's kind of the cool thing, is you can treat your applications and your whole like services and workloads as cattle too, and move them exactly where you need to to optimize for whatever business needs you have. So, so you said edge, Bill, and that, that got my attention, talking about Kubernetes clusters on the edge. And it, it just made me wonder, what happens with Kubernetes as you know, IoT continues to explode, right? As there's more and more devices out there on the edge. Does Kubernetes play nice in this new world going forward or do there need to be changes in order for this to all work out? So yeah, I think there's kind of two different parts to this question. Um, I think Kubernetes definitely enables a lot of things on the IoT and edge ecosystem, but there's also some changes that need to be made to it in order to make that more feasible. So. I think it also depends on how exactly you define edge. Um, so we have some customers <laughs> Which defining- we've, every guest we've had has given us, literally <laughs> given us a different answer when we've asked about edge. Some are in time frame, some are location. Um, it's it's funny. So we'll, we'll assume, we'll agree that, that edge has a slippery definition. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you're looking at edge as small like Raspberry Pi type devices or let's say something like traffic cameras that are running just like small things to collect license plate numbers or something like that, where you have like really small processors in very distributed locations, then yeah, I think there's a lot of actually interesting stuff going on in the Kubernetes ecosystem around that. So you have the K3 uh, OS from Rancher about kind of stripping down Kubernetes and making it able to run on the edge. And in terms of actually running, Kubernetes on the edge, it actually provides a lot of things, especially as you start to scale up towards um, bigger things. So if we're looking about running edge data centers in say retail locations or in manufacturing, it provides benefits there because right now we're running servers on-premise with no connection. There's no way to update and really 
control what's going on in the environment from a centralized location. It's actually a very labor intensive process to go to these edge locations and manual update things. So we've seen customers running like decades old software because there's no simple way for them to update things across all of their locations. And so what Kubernetes allows you to do is to provide a consistent kind of compute platform across these distributed locations and really gives you the ability to manage hundreds or thousands of locations all at once from one central platform and do kind of automation of software updates and deployments. So Bill, when we're talking about clusters on the edge and, and honestly with, with this master tenant model, you can you can sort of create and destroy the individual tenants at will. I, I guess, so just as like a thought experiment, is, is that what we need at the edge or do you need the, the notion of a, a cluster that's always going to stay resident, but the, the individual nodes of that cluster may come up and down based on what the either the capabilities or the life cycle of individual devices on that edge might be? Yeah, so I think we're actually seeing it play out a couple different ways in our customers right now. And I think our architecture really gives us an, an advantage in, in that way. So it really depends. I think I think at the end of the day, with any type of IT thing, you there shouldn't have a tool to solve a problem. You should have a, pro, a problem that's being solved by a tool. So sure. you should really fit the solution to the actual problem. And so depending on the exact customer requirements, I think really depends on the solution that you should have. And there's kind of like two different ways that we view it right now, depending on what the customer can provide and what kind of guarantees that they can have. Now, um, in terms of kind of like data security or latency type things, we see customers actually running clusters completely by themselves on the edge. So one would be for legal requirements. They need to be able to uh, run things in kind of like air gap environments where they're just like kind of set up. Um, and so we can actually use Kubernetes to provision and set up clusters on the edge with only kind of limited or intermittent connection. That works the exact same with places that have limited connectivity. So as you're going out further away, I mean, we all live in major cities where you kind of have a guaranteed internet connection, even if sometimes your router doesn't work. But as you move kind of out of that towards places on the edge, say you're running like windmill farms, uh, like out in the countryside, you may not have the best internet connection all the time. And so how do you deal with internet intermittent connectivity towards sure. these kind of like master cluster? So what we're kind of seeing is you can both run it both ways. The other way is to, I think the other thing we're seeing is you want to have centralized management, but you need to be able to add worker nodes on the edge as locations come online or other things come up. And so you can actually, what, what the thing we're seeing is actually you're, you can create master clusters in the central environment. And then as worker nodes come online, they can automatically join to that cluster. And what kind of the use case looks like for that is the person that's uh, working in a fast food service restaurant and needs to be able to uh, set up kind of like the in-house, uh, let's say like IT infrastructure, is probably not going to be an IT expert. They need to have kind of like a plug and play model. And so if you can just hand them a box, they plug in, provide electricity, provide an internet connection, and it automatically connects up to the centralized cluster. It really changes who has the ability to create this infrastructure for you. So rather than having to send an expensive technician out to the side, you can ship basically a plug and play box out and somebody can just 
plug it in, and you have your Kubernetes cluster on the edge there. Now, let me let me ask you this. So we've talked a lot about this notion of the, the master and tenant model, where you're spinning up essentially fresh VMs for your tenant cluster, but you're you're instantiating that process from this this master cluster. So Alibaba, as I think you know, has a has an alternate view of this as a way to get some multi-tenancy for Kubernetes clusters, and they call them virtual clusters. And they're doing some fancy stuff with namespaces to to use that as a boundary, a resource separation boundary between different pods that might be running on top of a cluster. But in in this virtual cluster idea that they've put forth that that has some traction with CNCF, it's still on top of the same cluster. Whereas with the master tenant, you're you're getting a fresh cluster on top of some VMs, but with this virtual VM, it's it's using the same VM space as as the master cluster. So compare and contrast sort of those those two approaches for me. Yeah. So I think the Alibaba cloud project is definitely interesting, though the thing I would be kind of like most concerned about that, it really harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, is that you still, at the end of the day, have something that's a pet. It's not completely a cattle type infrastructure model. Um, If you're running everything inside one big cluster, you're still running into all the problems you had previously. When things go wrong, it affects kind of like every single thing. Yes, it's providing some type of isolation, but namespace isolation isn't complete hard multi-tenancy. So this is why we actually find a lot of our customers finding the simplicity of spinning clusters up and down is really all that they need. So I somewhat understand where Alibaba's cloud is coming from, but I think their idea comes from they didn't have the simplicity of spinning clusters up and down as simply as a click or an API call away. Um, So it somewhat seems counterintuitive to me to as we're trying to move things more towards a cattle type management model to move one part of it back towards a pet. Right. Cause yeah, cause that's essentially what, what their argument is, is, is this one giant cluster where you separate things with namespaces as opposed to in this master tenant model that all, all you really use the master for is for launching the tenants. You don't run workload on it in the same way you do with this virtual cluster kind of yeah. uh, set up. So yeah, I, I see where you're coming from on that. Pete, I have a question. As as I listened to Bill talking about what the Lutza product does, and we, you haven't even mentioned, what's the name of the product that you've been, uh, quite discreet, Bill, but what's the name <laughs> of uh, this product that Lutza is, ref- you're referring to? So it's called the Kubernetes, Kubernetes platform, and kind of the uh, name behind it is a unique combination of Kubernetes and Automatic for Kubernetes. So it's really putting your Kubernetes platform on autopilot for you. Perfect. Now, to me, this sounds very, uh, Pete, this sounds very much like a Cisco container platform similar solution on a, sure. on a superficial level anyway. I don't have my arms down deep in the stew that makes either of these things unique. You have, you've had your arm deep enough in the CCP bucket that can you help me understand what's the difference? Is there a material difference? Are they actually doing the same thing, just doing it different ways, or are they doing different things? Yeah, it's doing similar things in slightly different ways. And as as you might guess, ours is a little bit more tied to, has some specials with some Cisco hardware, specifically, you know, as, as it relates to the way that the storage works 
on the Hyperflex boxes and some of that stuff we initially launched with CCP upon its inception. But in concept, they do similar things. Uh, I would say an, another difference is, and, and the reason I asked the EKS question earlier is instead of launching tenant clusters on top of EC2 instances with CCP, you do it in either EC, EKS or AKS. We're, we're using those systems for those on Amazon and on uh, Azure respectively. And there's, you know, there, there's arguments both ways on that, that is it is it better to take the native capabilities of what each of those platforms is doing on top of Kubernetes, or is it better to take the same the same Kubernetes distribution regardless of where you're deploying it and and have it be the the same on top of VMs regardless of where what data center it's sitting in? So th those are the major differences that I see. Is that Cisco we've chosen to do to to have a little bit more specific hooks, whether it's whether it's to our own Hyperflex boxes or to the Kubernetes distributions on either Azure or uh, or Amazon. But in concept, it's the same kind of thing where you have a master, you have a master cluster from which you launch tenant clusters. Okay, that helped me understand. Thank you. So um, if you're if you're listening and you're interested in this concept, Lutza is who Bill works for. The product is Kubernetes. And I assume Lutza.com is the website? Yes, and our new website is actually being launched as we speak. So by the time the podcast is up, it'll be fully available. Excellent. And I'm pronouncing it Lutza, which is the cool, correct German pronunciation, I've been told. <laughs> but it's spelled, for my American friends, L-O-O-D-S-E. If you're interested, go check that out. Even though Cisco has a competing product, we're still going to give a little plug to these guys and uh, let you make the decision for yourself. The Cisco product is Cisco Container Platform, as Pete mentioned, and you can find that on cisco.com, just uh, or really just Google Cisco Container Platform. It comes right up. Well, and to to Bill's point earlier, being able to bring bring up and down a tenant cluster can be pretty handy. The when when in previous episodes we've we've talked about the open source project I did last year called Fonk. Yes. I did that on a DevNet sandbox running CCP, and mm -hmm. I would. I would weekly launch a, a fresh cluster or if I wasn't using something for a couple of weeks, you know, if I had other things I was doing because it was a side project, I'd tear that cluster down, not worry about it and then bring it up again. And to Bill's point that, you know, with this model of, of tearing, tearing down tenant clusters when you're not using them, there, there's all kinds of benefits when it comes to cost or maintenance or, you know, all kinds of other things like that, that, that makes it a, a lot easier than if you were, using this more pets-based model where, oh my gosh, you've got to leave that cluster up and not touch it, and it's got to be running 24-7, as opposed to, all right, I'll start from scratch every week and <laughs> and go from there. <laughs> so the takeaway is whether you use a Lutza product, a Cisco product, or some other product altogether, for the love of God, stop treating your Kubernetes clusters like pets. <laughs> Just stop it. Hey, yeah. we're running out of time, but but Bill, before we, we leave, um, Share with us your origin story. How did you wind up in this uh, particular career? Yeah, so it's an interesting story how I ended up in Kubernetes. I actually originally began as a biochemist. So I spent seven years in a research lab working with real mice rather than computer mice, writing papers, looking at a microscope, presenting at conferences. Kind of at the end of that time, I figured out I didn't like 
being bit by mice so much and I wanted a little bit more human interaction. And so I decided to go to grad school, but kind of switched fields. And when I was thinking about what I really thought was true about the world, I came up with the thesis that storytelling is our most valuable human skill because it allows us to take a personal experience and connect it to a universal audience to change how they see the world. And so in kind of that process of discovery, I came across a course called Social Science of the Internet at the Oxford Internet Institute. And I decided to look at how scientists connect, communicate, and collaborate using the internet. And the great thing about Oxford, uh, once I got in, is that it gives you a lot of time and freedom to explore what you're passionate about. And there I discovered I had a passion for machine learning and artificial intelligence. I ended up writing my master's thesis on how scientists use artificial intelligence for cancer research. And once I finished my time at Oxford, I decided I wanted to move to Berlin for kind of a new life phase. Now, getting my first job kind of right out of grad school uh, with just a backpack to my name and crashing on a friend's floor, kind of had to take what came at me. And I got a job at a machine learning company that was working on this cool new technology called Kubernetes. And the first day at my job, uh, I sat down, had never seen the command line before, was working on the Windows machine, and was told to set up a Kubernetes cluster. Now, it took me eight hours to set that up, uh, which kind of looking at, it takes me about eight seconds now on our product. A little bit of a difference uh, when you can treat things more like cattle and just like one click away. But I did set up a cluster on that first day. Fortunately, it was a startup, so that one didn't work out. But I was able to transition right to Ludza and leverage my Kubernetes knowledge that I'd learned at the previous company towards our product. So that's kind of my long and winding path on how I got into this whole Kubernetes ecosystem. I'm going to say that's not a very well-beaten path. I don't think most people go, <laughs> go, go down the seven years as a bio-researcher first, but, yes. uh, but it got you where you needed to be. And, and, and I'm betting that you are correct in your hypothesis that reduced number of mouse bites equals an upward right trajectory of happiness in the workplace. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing uh, your thoughts on this. I think it's a compelling, interesting conversation, and uh, I'm really glad that uh, we got to speak with you. Uh, thanks for your time today. I really enjoyed being on the podcast today. Excellent. Well, stay in touch, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime.